Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Dr Lisa Norton, one of many scientists responsible for delivering the Countryside Survey, a unique audit of the natural resources of the UK's countryside and a great source of data for any GIS geography enthusiast. Firstly, thank you for being with us today, Dr. Lisa Norton from the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. Can I start by asking, what do you do at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology? <laughs> Good question. Um, so I'm a full-time researcher uh, in, a, in a group called the Land Use Group, uh, and I work generally on sort of large-scale, long-term monitoring of the countryside. Uh, And my particular interest is actually around farming impacts on biodiversity and landscape. And from that, you've contributed to a nationwide survey called the Countryside Survey. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, the Countryside Survey is, is actually a repeated national survey of the Great British countryside, and uh, it's it's aimed at investigating what different habitats and landscape features we have in the GB countryside and what kind of condition they're in. Uh, And and importantly, because it's a repeated survey, it looks at how that's changing over time. You mentioned there that it's repeated. Can I ask when it started? Yes, so the first full GB survey was in 1978. Prior to that, uh, the person who kind of invented it, who was a Professor Bob Bunce, had tried some uh, smaller scale surveys to see if the methodology worked. So he'd, he'd had a look at Shetland and he'd also had a look at Cumbria. And that's what uh, the, the whole GB countryside survey was based on. In the teaching resources on our website, you mentioned that Great Britain contains 240,000 one kilometre squares. Could you explain what a stratified random sampling system is? The stratified random sampling is a way of taking a representative sample of something that's too big to look at the whole of at any one time. So I was trying to think of something that you could compare this to. And imagine you were looking at a body uh, and you wanted to look at skin covering that body and you wanted to look in real detail so you wanted to look at one millimeter sections of skin in order to sort of get a picture of the whole of one body that would be an awful lot of one millimeter sections of skin to look at so what you might do is to classify that body into different parts uh, and then sample each of those parts so you might say well the skin on somebody's arms or hands or the top or bottom of their feet is all going to be different so you'd create a number of classes the hand class the feet class the belly class etc and then you do a sample of a few millimeters of each of those classes rather than having to cover every single millimeter of all of those classes so it's just a way so gb is pretty big as you've said um and actually going and looking at each one kilometre square is just unfeasible. So the way to do it is to try to group those one kilometre squares into units which are reasonably uniform and then just take a sample within those units. 
So the way that's done is is on the basis of actually 75 different variables, so quite a complicated analysis, 75 different variables which are likely to affect the sort of land cover and then use those variables in a big complex analysis to group one kilometre squares across Great Britain into these different categories and those different categories have been called land class so if it was a skin and a body it's a hand but if it's GB you'd actually use land class instead so yeah there are 45 land classes and they range all the way from the hills of of northern Scotland to the lowlands of East Anglia, uh, where one kilometre squares that are relatively similar are sort of grouped together to be a land class. So that's the sort of stratification part of it. And you can make a map of, um, of Great Britain, which shows you which land class every single one kilometre square across Britain is in. And then if to take a random sample of that, you're literally just taking a random set of one kilometre squares within those land classifications and they're taken sort of in proportion to the size of each bit so for my body analogy think leg versus hand so if it was a leg you'd have to take quite a few more skin samples whereas if it was a hand it's obviously smaller so you take less so the same would be true for land classes so you then it allows you to say something from your randomly stratified sample about each of those land classes, each of those 45 land classes. And, and that's, what the, that's what it means. That is fascinating. Within those land classes, do the Countryside Survey then classify heather, grasslands, bracken, bogs and so on? No, it doesn't classify those. So the the whole um, idea is that the land cover, that the stuff on top of the land is all uh, influenced by these 75 variables that go into the analysis. So they are things like geology, climate, soil, uh, altitude. So they're not they're not whether it's heather or bog or or arable, but they will influence what the land cover is likely to be. So if you're in a very lowland area with very thick uh, wet soils and and a particular type of geology, you're likely to to get arable land because it's good land for growing crops. Whereas, you know, if you're in the Scottish Highlands and you're on very rocky ground, very high altitudes, then that's going to influence what type of land cover you get as well. So it's kind of independent of the land cover which is is part of the story, really. This sounds like an excellent source of data for geography coursework, in particular the NEA at A-level. The land survey data is collected and used to produce GIS. How does that work and what does it have to do with the land classes? So the, the GIS, so what happens is that land, the underlying land classification, as, as I'd said before, every one kilometre square in Great Britain has a land classification and then what we've done is actually go and visit those squares so the countryside surveys which have happened in 78, 84, 90, 2000 and 2007 are actually massive survey exercises when a large number of field ecologists go out and visit that random sample of one kilometre squares and they do a really detailed study 
of the land cover, the habitats, the landscape features, the soils, the freshwater, and, and they map the entire square and they do a large number of vegetation plots. And basically, because they're collecting all that information in a random sample of each of the land classes, you can then use that information to map the features of the land classes. So the sample is effectively used um, to extrapolate the results from that sample. So you, say you looked randomly at 12 squares within a particular landscape, uh, within a particular land class. All of that information is collected together and averages are taken. And then you could extrapolate and say, well, for that land class, uh, these are the kinds of landscape features and habitats you get. This is the kind of species richness you get from the plot data. This is the kind of soil uh, variables that you get, etc. So it's a sample of the environment. So you've mentioned this sampling has occurred since 1978. I imagine the results since then have been a lot of ecological and environmental change. Or is that not the case? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, why we've continued to do the surveys, both from a scientifically interesting point of view, but also the survey has increasingly been supported by governments who recognise the value as a kind of audit of the countryside and want to know what it can tell us about change. So uh, some of the more significant changes I can think of immediately are things like linear features, so uh, hedges, for example, were something uh, something that are really important in our country because we have some areas of our countryside where the where the country's pretty uniform. You know, the, we've got grassland extending for large areas, or we've got arable land extending for large areas, and hedges within that landscape can really make a big difference from a biodiversity perspective because they're providing a different habitat for birds, for bats, invertebrates, plants, etc. And one of the things Countryside Survey showed uh, between 78 and, and 90 particularly was that we were actually losing hedges. We kind of knew that that was likely because fields were getting uh, made bigger inevitably meaning that the boundaries were being lost. But that loss of hedges was resulting in quite a loss of wildlife in, in the countryside. And um, and so what happened as a result of Countryside Survey showing that loss was that uh, the hedgerow regulations got brought in in England, uh, where the government now prohibit removal of hedges unless you get a specific derogation. So unless you specifically ask for permission to remove it for a, for a very good reason, hopefully. So that's the, one of the one of the um, things that CS picked up. But otherwise, it has really picked up changes in species richness across different habitats. So that's the number of different plant species we have within those habitats. And, and unfortunately, that's rather a negative message because in most habitats, what we've been seeing is a real decline in, in species, um, both associated with the different habitat types, but also with landscape features like hedgerows uh, and along stream sides. So, yeah, it's, it's very important from that perspective. Uh, in in showing that message to government and and uh, from a scientific perspective, and that is the biodiversity crisis that people talk about nowadays. I imagine. 
Yes, I think it is. Uh, and because Countryside Survey is, I mean, other biodiversity, there are other ways of getting biodiversity data and there's a lot of citizen science that takes place, but they're very often targeted at particularly interesting or charismatic species, birds and butterflies. Um, whereas Countryside Survey is really focused on surveying the countryside, the the less interesting bits of the countryside or or just the bits that we randomly hit and so that's why it's particularly important because it's picking up on what's actually happening in the wider countryside not in the bits that are looked after as nature reserves or or the charismatic species but the species that uh, are out there sort of uh, providing nectar and pollen for uh, for our pollinator species or weeds sometimes we would call them weeds but they might be really important uh, in the wider countryside and and what trees are out there basically it, it's just telling us quite a lot about how biodiversity is changing in the wider countryside and because we know uh, which habitats it's occurring in because we do surveys of, of the habitat as well as the vegetation that allows us to get a better understanding of why things are changing not just that they are changing but they're changing in arable habitats or they're changing in bog habitats or they're changing in woodlands and then we can start to to look at why they might be changing. Can we turn our attention now to upland areas? Have you seen any changes in peatlands or bogs? So in terms of particularly high profile measures like carbon, soil carbon, no, we haven't really seen any big changes in those over the period of survey. Uh, Those habitats, uh, upland habitats, tend to be pretty stable in terms of soil carbon and and many of their characteristics. Well, one really good message, which was that uh, they have become less acidic um, and we think that's because sulfur dioxide, which um, historically was a, a sort of gas that was released by a lot of industrial processes and used to sort of drift up to those upland areas and be deposited, uh, making those areas more acidic. That's definitely changing. So they're becoming less acidic, which is quite a good news story for those habitats. Um, but the other thing that is de- deposited is, is nitrous uh, oxide and nitrogen. Uh, which is um, sort of uh, makes the landscape a bit more fertile. And sometimes that uh, in the past, some of the stories from Countryside Survey have been around a bit of increasing fertility in some of those upland areas. Uh, And that means that actually probably means more species. But in this case, they're not species that you really want in those areas because they're species that like the nitrogen that's been deposited from sort of industrial or farming processes. So the carbon's been very stable. There have been some some relatively small changes around um, around nitrogen and, as I said, quite a positive response to reductions in sulphur dioxide emissions. Is it accurate to say that there have been greater changes in the lowlands then, in and around arable farming, for example? Yes, I think so. So actually, in the last survey, we, we didn't, we we saw something of um, a species increase in those arable areas. But in terms of soil, we were seeing signals of a decline in carbon, in soil carbon, in those habitats. And this, that's um, quite worrying, really, because we know that we need carbon to be locked up in our soils, because that's really important for 
controlling carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere. Uh, so uh, a lot of carbon in arable soils is has been quite a strong mass- message coming out of countryside survey. And I think the farming lobby, uh, the farming industry, have recognised that there are potential problems there. Not not just not just. Uh, for atmospheric carbon dioxide, but also for the health of their soils, because the more carbon you have in the soil, the healthier it is. Um, And so I think uh, this has seen some responses by government um, in terms of uh, looking at how that could be addressed, that, that loss of carbon from arable soils. Specifically, what can you say has happened to UK deciduous trees? For example, Dutch elms disease or ash dieback? Yeah, so um, Dutch elm disease sort of preceded a bit uh, the survey, although I'm not quite sure on the dates exactly, but we certainly, uh, there's a lot less elm in the countryside than there was historically, and we we do pick out elm in the survey, but uh, it's nowhere near as prevalent as it used to be. Uh, And the the worrying thing is that uh, that is very likely to happen with ash in the future. So our last full survey was in 2007. uh, And at the time, ash dieback was just starting to become a a bit of an issue. And uh, so we were just about looking for signs of ash dieback uh, among the surveyors in the last survey, but uh, it, it was very, uh, it wasn't very prevalent at the time, so we didn't pick up a lot of it. But um, we are starting another a new survey. We started a new survey last year, uh, which will survey some ash trees, and uh, we should be able to pick up increasing evidence of the of the disease but countryside survey has been really important for recording trees outside of woodlands so there are other surveys like the national forest inventory which records trees in woodlands but um, ash is a particularly important tree outside of woodlands it's one of our main hedgerow trees ash and oak being the two most prevalent hedgerow trees actually that means big tall trees standing up in the hedges but it's also managed as one of the hedge hedge components and it, and it's also often found in small groups of trees uh, around the edges of fields and uh, just in the corners of fields and so countryside survey has, has shown us that uh, and that those those data have been you know government have wanted to know where the ash trees are uh, and countryside survey has been really useful for showing where ash ash is and the, and and therefore I think we will have a better understanding of what the countryside is quite likely to look like once that ash is gone if indeed it does all disappear. For teachers, how might this resource be used in the classroom? Yeah, so um, the, the resource that's been put together is 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 really excellent, and I think um, one aspect of the resource is is for students to have a look at Countryside Survey and to get a good understanding of where it comes from and what and what it does. So I think there's all sorts of issues about understanding the statistical approach, the need for that kind of robust statistical analysis of the environment and how it might be done and and also the need for monitoring ongoing monitoring to look at change and so I think there's really um, there's a there's a good resource there which which uh, points to the countryside survey website and all the resources there but there's also this specific GIS resource which allows students to explore some of that data so using the land classification and the actual survey 
data collected by surveyors. They can um, explore that data and have a look and, and map different variables up. So there's some very specific tasks which students can work through and exercises. And, it, and it's just a really, um, well, we hope it's, it's an interesting uh, set of data that uh, real data that's collected by real scientists that they can use practically and they may even learn something from that data that we've never looked at for example because it's a very big data set and there's all sorts of bits and pieces that students can can start to look at so I think there's the original set of uh, tasks but then um, there's sort of some encouragement to uh, allow students to go off and explore on their own using the data set using the uh, GIS resource so I, th I hope it's a it's a really good resource for students to learn something about um, ecology particularly uh, particularly geography students uh, so because uh, I think ecology is something that um, used to be on a biology more on a biology syllabus and so lots of geography teachers are perhaps a little bit less familiar with um, ecology uh, and ecological science so I'm hoping Hoping that as well as introducing students to something different, it will be uh, introducing geography teachers to something different, but also something that they can uh, relatively easily work with in GIS. There's huge potential in the subject for this ecology drive. In units such as ecosystems under stress or the carbon cycle and energy security at A-level. Can I ask, what's the plan for the future? When's the next survey and when will we get the next round of data? Yeah, so um, the next survey is actually already underway. So because it's linked, it has been uh, recently quite closely linked to policy as well as to science that that can be a strength but also a bit of a drawback um, and so the last full survey fully supported by government and by um, the Natural Environment Research Council uh, was in 2007. We've been trying very hard to get another survey because they've been roughly decadally since 1978 but it only actually started in 2019 and that survey is going to be a rolling program so instead of 70 odd surveyors all going out in one year and looking at uh, 590 squares there will be a smaller number of surveyors going out annually over five years to look at 500 squares and the survey this time is just science funding at the moment we are in discussion with government about whether or not they join in if they do join in it will enable the survey to be a bit more um, a bit more like previous surveys at the moment it's rather constrained because the resources are a bit less so there will be data uh, and it, it's uh, going to is going from 2019 to probably 2024 now because it, we don't know if we'll be able to survey in this year because of covid uh, that's 2020 but um, yes it should be a five-year rolling program and uh, the data will be available at the end of the programme, we probably will be releasing some information during the course of the survey, but because of the need for statistically robust numbers for the sampling, the sort of final data won't be ready until the very end of that period of survey.
But the uh, previous data uh, is is still available from a number of those previous surveys. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting questions that you can ask of that data that probably haven't already been asked that would be relevant to future and to now even because countryside change is not necessarily very rapid. Um, habitats and uh, species change uh, over quite long timescales sometimes. As you said, a really great ecological resource for geographers. Is there any scope for teachers to learn about field sampling techniques from the Countryside Survey? Yes, I think that's somewhere we would really like to see a bit further development. So um, the standard methodologies that we use within Countryside Survey are, are very transferable and uh, schools could follow similar approaches, which would then enable them to uh, compare their data with uh, perhaps with one another, but also with countryside survey data, which is sampling similar uh, locations, uh, school playing fields or, or wherever it is. Uh, teachers decide to sample but yeah we just we think there's an opportunity there and some and because we've also uh, moved to a digital recording system some of which you can just use on on smartphones we think there is potential for producing extra packages which may help teachers to um, to think about um, sampling techniques and and provide data which they could then compare with the wider countryside data. Thank you so much for being with us today Lisa. We hope to hear from you again soon. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.